Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is joining Canada's premiers at the table in Ottawa today, where he's set to offer them a significant increase towards health care funding. What are the premier's expectations? Well, we'll get into that. And what do nurses need and want from this health care meeting? Plus, the battle continues to rage in Ukraine as they brace themselves for a new Russian offensive. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we've been talking about for the last couple of days, uh, the premiers are in Ottawa today to meet with the prime minister uh, to try to hammer out a health care deal. And, uh, well, it's maybe going to be a little tense from time to time around the table as they try to get this thing done. Emily Joveski has some details for us. The premiers say they're going into the talks with an open mind, no red line, and a willingness to sign one-on-one agreements with Ottawa for more money. The premiers have been asking Trudeau to come to the table for over two years to discuss an increase to the Canada health transfer, with the provinces wanting Ottawa to increase their share to 35% from 22%. A senior government official says Trudeau will lay out a 10-year deal that will top up the annual transfer well off offering more targeted funding with conditions attached. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. So uh, let's talk about exactly what we're going to see and uh, what we're going to hear around the table. And uh, to do that, please to welcome back to the program, Mohamed Ali, Senior Consultant with uh, Crestview Strategies. Uh, Mohamed, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. There has been, shall we say, an acrimonious relationship between the Prime Minister and, and a number of the premiers. Of, you know, Saskatchewan, Scott Moe comes to mind, uh, but even Alberta, certainly, and uh, to a lesser extent, I guess, in Quebec. Uh, I, I don't expect these guys to join hands and start, you know, singing, you know, kumbaya and everything. But I mean, is there a possibility that they can get some consensus here with the Prime Minister today? Yeah, I, th- I suspect they'll get some sort of consensus. I think the, the, the premiers have faced a ton of heat individually from, from their own electorates uh, across uh, in each of their respective provinces. So uh, they all have, are facing the music, so to speak, in terms of getting extra healthcare funding, getting the resources in there, you know, additional you know, primary care, surgery backlog addressed and such. Um, and so they, and they've all sort of signaled that they are finally willing to accept that strings have to be attached in order to ensure that whatever federal money comes in goes to the very things that, that has been outlined and agreed to. And that's always been a sticking point, hasn't it? I mean, they've been talking from afar. They haven't, as, as Emily just mentioned in her report, there, they haven't actually sat down in the same room. Uh, I know there have been teleconferences and things of that nature over the COVID period, but now they're going to be face-to-face. Uh, and that one element that you just touched on, I think, is is probably something that has yet to be resolved. It's one thing to say, okay, here's more money, uh, but it's where it's being spent in the provinces that, that doesn't seem to actually be part of the discussion very often, and I think that's a pretty key element. Yeah, and look, I think the what's, what's unique in how this sort of quote-unquote announcement will be today of all, you know, there's going to be tons of uh, discussion around how we move forward. I think you'll see a lot of signaling towards like, okay, we're going to launch officially, you know, uh, bilateral negotiations. And I expect provinces like Ontario to be early out, you know, first out of the gate, so to speak, in terms of securing a deal, because ultimately all these premiers have had either individual or sort of group discussions with the prime minister about like, Hey, like we just got to figure this one out. And so, you know, we'll, 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 we'll accept what we need to accept. And obviously they're, Health ministers and their finance ministers have all been coordinating with their federal counterparts to to date. So, I don't suspect all of these people, will, all these 
politicians will expect surprises. I think ultimately it's a, a, can we assure that what is going to be negotiated and what funding will be given to provinces will in fact do what we want it to do. There's always going to be some rhetoric in situations like this, but what are, what are the expectations of the premiers? You know, some of the stuff leaked out yesterday about how much it's going to be, the 10-year package, et cetera, and how much money the prime, the prime minister is likely to put on the table anyway. And, and Scott Moe in Saskatchewan's immediate reaction was, well, it's not enough, uh, which doesn't bode well for the, this consensus that you were talking about a second ago. Uh, but, but are they expecting a lot more money? Are they expecting that the prime minister to just sign the check? Or is there an expectation that, as you say, there's going to have to be some, some prescriptive ideas about where that money should be allotted to in those provinces? I mean, look, I think the, the prime minister and, and his members of his cabinet have been very clear, you know, they weren't going to talk money until they agreed upon what actually needs to be addressed with increased funding. And and again, like we've talked about this multiple times, like some of these premiers, such as Scott Moe, have been running surpluses, but refuse to spend that surplus on healthcare that they def- desperately need to. And so, th- you know, coming into this sort of, uh, discussion and negotiation with the prime minister, th- they will all, you know, begrudgingly in different ways accept the conditions that have to be placed in order to get the funding. Because ultimately, they could walk away. They're like, nope, I can't accept this and, and take the take a different path. But ultimately, they all need the federal funding. Um, and they'll also never say anything's enough. And so I, they also uh, expect that they're asked, you know, you almost kind of, Ask for more and expect a little bit less, knowing full well like you have to, and that's sort of a negotiating sort of position. And uh, I think the prime minister will come out pretty clear. And I think probably victorious here about making sure that the premiers use the money for what it's worth and not uh, to give tax breaks or cut spending elsewhere and, and displacing essentially displacing other provincial dollars for just getting extra federal money. And and that's a contentious point, isn't it? Uh, you know, this, uh, well, it's only 22%. No, it's 37% that would, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, they're arguing back and forth about the numbers here. Uh, but the, the federal government comes up, I think, with a legitimate point here. Yes, they did offer uh, uh, tax uh, credits uh, for the provinces back in 97, I guess it was. But a lot of those provinces, uh, I think, as you mentioned before, put those th- that, th- that money into general revenue. They didn't necessarily spend it on health care. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that the feds are looking for here, isn't it, is, is some clear ideas of exactly where this money is going to be allocated, not just into general revenue. Yeah, and look, I mean, even more recent examples with the, uh, in this pandemic, uh, you know, uh, the federal government gave about $2 billion for a safe restart uh, for schools and, um, and for COVID-related reasons to Ontario, and they didn't end up spending any of it. Remember the whole fiasco with schools and not getting proper mm-hmm. supplies and such, but yet there was federal money on the table. They just didn't use it. But additionally, there was that safe restart agreement that was signed as sort of a pan-Canadian deal, about $19 billion to help transit and help, you know, get the economy restarted back in, you know, uh, late 2020, early 2021. And ultimately, a number of provinces just simply displaced their own funding. And some had elections that coming out too, we're giving tax breaks. And we're like, hey, like, what are you talking about? You, you just, you know, you cried poor here asking us for money. We gave you money, particularly with less strings attached, because that's what you asked for. And then you sort of uh, did whatever you wanted and didn't actually do what it was intended. So we didn't actually get the outcomes we needed. And so, you know, the federal government is very, you know, keen to not repeat that same situation. And so they will be, and that's what today's all about. It is all about you guys cannot do that again. 
because we can't afford to do that again because Canadians can't wait. And as we're seeing polls, people just want things fixed. They don't want to deal with all the politics anymore. Just get it done. And and it's surprising sometimes that the premiers have to be convinced of that. But here we are. How are the, the the prime minister and, and his team? How are they going to approach this today? Is it, is it in the same fashion as as the the childcare program that uh, that they rolled out a while ago? There's here's the package, and and then there's some flexibility here, and and you know not everybody opted in at the same time. As, as we recall, Ontario was the last one to sign on, but many others did. Uh, is it going to be all or nothing at all, or are they going to try to, to deal with the provinces on a one by one basis uh, with this package on the table? They'll deal with them one-on-one. I think that the childcare deal, which is slightly different, you know, the sort of federal priority that was sort of placed upon provinces, but this will be uh, one-on-one deals. You know, they and and each of the federal ministers and the prime minister himself have indicated as such that, you know, each province is slightly unique. So we can't just have a blanket approach. There'll be sort of broad thematic, you know, considerations that need to be addressed, you know, primary care access, the health and human resource impacts, the survey backlogs are pretty common across every province, but each province will have their sort of individual deal. And, and so whatever giant pot of money there is, deducted based upon population and whatever sort of calculations that uh, finance and others will use, that will be sort of the framework that will exist for each province. So that there's a better control mechanism of like, hey, you are actually using for said money, just like they are doing that for childcare. You are doing it in a certain way, and then reporting back to make sure that every dollar federally spent is actually used for the very thing we outlined in our deal. What? Uh, let's talk a little bit about, I just want to circle back to what's going to happen today. The Prime Minister's been quite clear to say, look, we're not going to walk away with the deal today. It's just not going to happen. And most of the premiers seem to be on the same page as far as that's concerned. What are they hoping to accomplish today then? I think you're going to probably see, and what they're hoping to accomplish is that, hey, this is, this is, the, this is the package like this is what we're looking at overall, like in terms of dollar value and what we're going to net increase. Uh, we're going to want these things addressed, these like X number of buckets all addressed, and we will negotiate individually with each of you. And ultimately for each of the premiers, I expect them all to sort of come out and say, look, we're going to get a deal signed right away, but we're going to get the best deal for you know, my province and, and the people of my province kind of thing. That's the messaging you will probably hear. The Essentially, the, the, the whole point of all of this is, you know, the prime minister was not going to meet with premiers until they agreed that, some, you know, what need to be done. Uh, it wasn't just simply a blank check. So that is what we're going to hear. We're going to hear that these premiers and the prime minister agreed upon the core principles and areas that need to be addressed with net new funding through CHT. And that will take them over into the next decade uh, to address and transform the healthcare system for the current and future crisis. Do you see or foresee a, a deal breaker here? Something that the premiers or even maybe even just one or two of them may just say, no, nope, that's not going to happen. That's got to go off the table. Because uh, in past discussions between the provinces and the federal government, uh, the, Quebec obviously had that that a responsibility and oftentimes it was deal or no deal as far as they were concerned. Uh, but if they're going to do this on a one-to-one basis here with all the provinces and territories, uh, I would imagine that there's not going to be too much drilling down today. It's really going to be just, here's the package and they're going to look at it from uh, as an overview as opposed to specifics. Well, there's always possibly that um, a premier throws a, throws a wrench in the plan by, by 
by making an outlandish claim or, or, or an odd sort of request or, or pushback. Uh, but, you know, if the, the prime minister, you know, it was, I, I think what, what is helpful from the federal perspective is that by looking to negotiate each individual, the same way how they did childcare, Ontario was last and other problems that were near last all got shamed, not by the federal government, but by the public because like, hey, well, all the other provinces have, have signed their deals and they're already addressing childcare, you know, fees and dropping them for, for families over there. Why are we so late? What is the issue? And so the same sort of vein here that, you know, certain provinces may say, well, no, we are definitely not going to sign out of this because of this. Well, they can be left out to dry and then they will have to face their voters and their and the people, their province that saying, hey, I didn't secure this, whatever. But then every other province is securing a deal that will put enormous pressure back on them to say, you need to negotiate the federal government and secure this deal because what they're putting forward is not unreasonable. You know, you're saying to, you know, address surgery backlogs, have better data sharing. I think the data sharing thing is probably going to be the big one that's going to be uh, key as an agreement piece, but also increasing primary care access um, and sort of, you know, the other key components of the deal that will, are, are, are going to be seen as reasonable by all, by all Canadians. So premiers have a bit of a, an incentive to sort of agree to what is being presented with them. The reason I was asking is in the past, of course, uh, some premiers have, have tried to build and actually, you know, maybe in, even inflame a controversial and, 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 you know, contrary point of view than the federal government. I mean, look at Alberta. They've got an election this year, uh, later on this year. Daniel Smith's going to be uh, trying to get elected uh, as, as premier. And uh, what better foil than to have the prime minister? But this sounds to me, though, Mohammed, as if this is too important to start playing politics with. I think they probably want to get the deal first and do the fencing later. Oh, for sure. And and for people like um, Premier Smith or in Manitoba, Premier Stephenson uh, or even PEI, they all have uh, a need to secure the deal as soon as possible because voters, particularly in Alberta right now, are just fed up and they want to address healthcare issues. Uh, it's a number one issue in that province, a number one issue in a number of provinces. So they, you know, they can at least have a message going into the election saying, hey, we secured the best deal for Alberta, best deal for Manitoba. And and if you can't, if you don't have that message, voters will punish them for saying, well, why didn't you secure a deal when everyone else is securing deals? Right? This is where it comes back to where the leverage is on the federal side to say, hey, like you need to sign this deal because we need to get things done. And you, if you're going to delay, then you can face the consequences of that uh, politically. Well, it's uh, going to be a very interesting to see just how it rolls out. I think the prime minister's not even going to show up until after lunch today. I guess he's got previous engagements, but uh, uh, hopefully there'll be something positive coming out of this. Mohammed, thanks as always for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Mohammed Ali, of course, uh, senior consultant at Crestview Strategies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's not by going to poach nurses from one province to one province that you will solve the healthcare system crisis that we are going through right now. It's by giving them better working condition and better healthcare environment. That is uh, Sylvain Brousseau, who is the president of the Canadian Nurses Association, uh, with his comments about, uh, well, what they're expecting uh, from this healthcare meeting that's going to be happening in Ottawa this morning. Uh, some concern about the way the premiers seem to be wanting to go here when it comes to healthcare reform. Uh, and it's those those concerns are, are, I think, magnified here in Ontario because of some of the things that our premier is bringing to the table. 
Uh, to talk about that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Claudette Holloway, who is the president of the Registered Nurses of Ontario. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for a busy day for you today. I appreciate you taking some time for us today. Good morning and thanks, Bill. You know what's going to happen here, of course. Uh, you, we already know what Doug Ford's bringing in his briefcase to this table today. Uh, he wants uh, a, a bigger part of our healthcare system to include uh, for-profit clinics. He's actually even set money aside to try to help the the, the private sector clinics. Uh, now, I want to get your official position here with uh, with the uh, the RNA about your position on that and whether you, uh, this is going to be part of the solution towards a better healthcare system. Well, um, we need. Uh all the premiers and our prime minister to step up and protect our publicly funded not-for-profit healthcare system. We don't want any Canadian to be left behind. Um, we do not want to have funds go into the hands of investors, so therefore we advocate that not a penny should go to for-profit care, uh, but rather to a publicly funded healthcare system. We have over uh, well, millions of, of Canadians without health care right now and nurses can play an important role in that uh, we've got nurse practitioners who are able to help so that we can have a system that is truly uh responsive and effective you know right now systems uh uh offices you know office hours are are the rule but you know if we can get a 24 7 healthcare uh system in place where we have nurses who can uh, contribute to in a big way to this build their careers in ontario they've been devastated by the pandemic, but you know, they continue to remain dedicated, but we really need all the help we can to help them to build careers in this province so that they can contribute to places like long-term care, um, community health uh, centers, and you know, address some, a lot of the mental health systems that we need to be in place. But are you confident that that's the direction the premiers are going to take? A lot of them are, are seemingly leaning towards uh, more private for-profit uh, facilities uh, to try to take up uh, some of the, the overload here. Well, that is not what Canadians deserve. So we're urging them to not uh, focus on for-profit. Um, we really want them to realize that no Canadian can be left behind because if we go this way, we're almost going the way of, of the U.S. where you have a two-tier system and there's no guarantee that that is going to uh, address the health care that, you know, that we need. Um, it's not going to address weight load, uh, weightless, um, you know, so we, it really needs to be publicly funded. So we really urge them to protect what the Canada Health Act stands for. Pertaining to the Ottawa or the Ontario situation here, there's a, there's an extra element to this as well, and and of course that's wages, benefits, and things of this nature. Uh, your union, among many others, uh, have have taken a real hit from the provincial government over the last little while uh, with Bill 124. I know it's been struck down by the Supreme Court, but the, the, apparently the government's going to appeal it and use our tax dollars to do that. Uh, how do you approach uh, negotiations with our particular uh, government here in Ontario to try to rectify that situation? Well. RNAO is a professional association and the uh, owner is the collective bargaining unit. So mm -hmm. um, again, we support that the premier, the, the <laughs> premier does not invest energy in appealing Bill 124. Let uh, our, our workers, our nurses, other healthcare workers negotiate a fair wage. Uh, they've been kept at 1% for so long. And on top of that, with the cost of living, that probably amounts to about 12% they're behind. So we're advocating that um, let's, you know, invest our energies in building 
um, careers for nurses here. Let's get on to talking about retention and recruitment. But overall, uh, premiers and the prime minister need to defend our publicly funded not-for-profit healthcare system. Well, that's a key part of the discussion, though, isn't it, Doctor? Is retention? You know, it's it's one thing to make an announcement that you're going to allow funding for you know for the training of more nurses and even you know offshore trained nurses. That's 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 a great idea. Uh, but at the same time, if they're walking out the back door because they just they just can't get the the you know the the heat is too much here. The the you know they're working. I, I know some of them working double shifts. Uh, and some of them, many of them are leaving the profession altogether. I mean, the, the, you've got to make this uh, a more attractive profession and vocation for people, don't you? Absolutely. And that's why we're advocating for the uh, prime minister to, you know, increase the uh, provincial funding to 35 percent. But we also want strings attached so that that money will go towards what we need. Uh, and here in Ontario, uh, probably much like other provinces, we need to address the nursing crisis. We need to, um, you know, make sure that nurses stay in our province and that uh, we make it so that they can, you know, make a, a reasonable living and um, grow their their careers here in, in this province. But overall, uh, for Canada, again, we come back to a, a not-for-profit system. Um, as you say, you know, you can do all the increasing that you want, but if they do not have fair compensation, you know, they're not going to stay They're They're going to other provinces. They're leaving the profession. They're retiring. They don't want to come back and help with orientating the next round of nurses. So we really advocate that um, they do all they can to uh, stop, stop that kind of bleed that's happening uh, for nurses leaving. Um, and let's build so that we can have every single nurse, you know, registered practical nurses, registered nurses, nurse practitioners to help our healthcare system. Are, are you confident, though, Doctor, that, uh, that that discussion is going to happen? I mean, if if this is going to be a repeat of what's happened in the past where the feds just give the money to the provinces and they spend it as they wish, uh, are you confident that we're going to see some of these areas uh, addressed properly? And as you mentioned, primary care has to be the foundation for it. Uh, but nurse practitioners, uh, public clinics uh, like St. Joe's Clinic in the East End of Hamilton uh, does such great work there. Uh, home care, uh, you know, visiting nurses. I mean, you know, all these elements are what made our healthcare system as great as it was back in the day. Uh, we have to recapture that, don't we? That's right. We, I mean, we have great needs, um, particularly in long-term care and, as you said, community health, mental health. Um, so that's why we're we're advocating that we have strings attached because we don't want money going into the hands of investors. And we will continue to advocate. Nurses will do everything that is possible. We have, uh, RNAO has action alerts that anyone can sign. Um, all professionals, members of the public can sign so that we maintain the pressure. And we will continue to maintain the pressure to advocate. We must, for the benefit of us all. We wish you well with it, doctor. And uh, we'll see what happens in the meeting in Ottawa today. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Bill, for the opportunity. Take care. Dr. Uh, Claudette Holloway, president of the Registered Nurses of Ontario. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
Ukrainian officials say the Russian forces' strategy is to tie down Ukrainian troops with attacks in the eastern Donbass as Moscow assembles additional combat power there for an expected offensive in the coming weeks. Military analysts believe the Kremlin's forces may be probing Ukrainian defences for weak points or could be making a deceptive probe while preparing for a main thrust through southern Ukraine. President Vladimir Putin's hungry for some battlefield success, especially securing illegally annexed territory in eastern Ukraine to mark the anniversary of his invasion on February 24, 2022. I'm Charles Zeledesma. So uh, things heating up in Ukraine, we were told, and I guess we're expecting a, some sort of a Russian offensive, and that seems to be the early part of it, uh, which is, well, not that there's ever a good time, but this is not a good time at all for some of the uh, uproar that seems to be happening, especially uh, when it comes to uh, what's going on uh, in, uh, the, in within the military, but also within the government. Uh, you know, was one of uh, Zelensky's top advisors fired or going to be replaced? Uh, there seems to be some confusion as to what's going on. To uh, shed some light on this, uh, please to welcome back to the program, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University, who's been following this story very closely. Uh, Elliot, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, your thoughts on what you've heard over the last couple of days. I mean, we knew the Russians were at some point going to be mounting a, a, an attack. Uh, they seem to be making some progress right now. Um, what, what are you seeing and what are you hearing? In terms of the battlefield, uh, really the offensive has already begun. Remember that Russia has had an unrelenting assault all across Ukraine, particularly on the energy infrastructure, but also civilian targets. While meanwhile, just a grinding conflict, as the U.S. calls it, has uh, been, been going on inside uh, the Donbass region, particularly around Bakhmut. This is uh, a town that we would not have heard of normally, but is now viewed as, uh, viewed as fortress Bakhmut by the Ukrainians. And... Clearly, the Russians are trying to take it over. The Wagner group is very active there, saying they, they are the ones who can do it. So there is a battlefield um, buildup going on. The concern now is that Russia has hundreds of thousands of additional troops they can pour into this, and they can muster them, Bill, on the Russian side of the border and also gather all the ammunition and other strike equipment. And Ukraine, even if it knows they're there, and I think they work closely with the Western intelligence services, cannot attack them until they actually cross into Ukraine because that's the pledge that Ukraine has given in terms of, in order to receive all the new Western armaments in particular. So they're massing these troops right now. This is obviously going to be the, the this is the offensive, uh, but they've already had some progress on this. Uh, at what point is is Zelensky going to say, look, I don't care what we promise, we have to defend our country? Or does he just wait till they start pouring across the border like locusts and just overrun whatever is there? Well, he has to have the material to do so. The Ukrainian yeah. armed forces have been extraordinarily innovative and, of course, courageous and has had uh, battlefield successes. But if you stand back half a uh, step, what appears to be the case is that Mr. Putin is trying to do now what he failed to do one year ago and is likely to use, everybody speculates, the uh, anniversary of the initial invasion to try to actually succeed. There's a buildup in Belarus uh, so, on the other end of the country in order to perhaps divert Ukrainian uh, attention but it's also possible they will use Belarus as an entry point to attack Kiev or other uh, areas in that part of the country, which puts them near Poland and the Baltic states. 
So keep that in mind. So we aren't quite sure what Mr. Putin is up to, except that he undoubtedly is determined to complete or to succeed in what he originally wanted, keeping in mind he's now said, no, no, it's just to consolidate our efforts in the Donbass. And they're, you know, if you toss another 300,000 and there's speculation, it's a half a million new troops. Uh, that's going to make it a very difficult situation. There's also, Bill, a time question here because uh, Russia may want to move before all this new armament that's been promised of all kinds actually gets into operational use by Ukraine. And also uh, in April, it gets very muddy there and nobody, Russia's worried about how they'll do in that case. So there may be a window in the the very near future where where, uh, Russia will make a major move. But with all this going on, I mean, this is clearly a critical time for for the, for Ukraine. Uh, what's going on with the government, though? I mean, you know, we heard stories earlier in the week that uh, that uh, the defense minister uh, Reznikov uh, is is being removed from that position. I guess he's still going to have a role, but a less a less significant role in this. Uh, is is this a statement? Now they they're denying it. He's saying, I don't know anything about this. What you guys are talking about? But it's there. It's it's somebody starting the, this rumor, and is, is there was. An expectation that there is going to be some some shifting around within the administration of this war. What's going on, I think, is that uh, on multiple fronts, Ukraine needs support, and the EU is a primary supporter. Remember, they uh, want to join the EU. They're being told basically, uh, you remember the family, the heads of the key leaders of the EU were just there in Kiev, and uh, now we hear that, and it's a rumor only that Mr. Zelensky will be personally invited to an EU summit uh, coming up. But of course, the more you talk about it, the less likely it'll it'll happen because of security concerns. But the main point here is, in order to maintain the support of the EU uh, and a critical uh, support and a future avenue of membership, corruption has to be dealt with. And corruption has been an enduring issue for Ukraine for a very long time. So right now, what we are seeing I think, is an attempt by, uh, by Mr. Zelensky, in fact, and also an image, to be cleaning up uh, the corruption issue. And they've been making progress. If, if we have time, I'll get into detail on it, in order to move forward with their integration with the EU. And, of course, uh, NATO on the other side is watching, and there's an overlapping membership there, uh, is watching very closely. So corruption is a longstanding issue. It had to be dealt with. Uh, both symbolically and visually, but also practically. The Defense Department has already had their deputy removed and uh, some other lower uh, level uh, officials removed. So defense, of course, is absolutely critical to what's going on. What is Mr. President Zelensky has said, we have to prove we are a safe vessel uh, for your funds. So you keep bringing the money and we will use it responsibly. And that's what's going on. Well, and that's the, the, the foundation for, the, the I guess, the concern here, isn't it, Elliot? There are billions of dollars flow going into Ukraine right now for all the right reasons, you know, aid from various countries, uh, some of it monetary. Uh, the temptation, I guess, if, if you're that of that mind, uh, to, to be able to get your hands on some of that money, it happens. I mean, it happened in every war because there's an exchange of money. It happened in World War II. There were people that uh, that benefited greatly from that. It happens in Vietnam. It happened in the, in the, you know, in the Afghan war. And on and on it goes. Something that we probably don't even think about. It's not front of mind for most of us right now, but it's it's the last headache that Zelensky needs right now. 
Indeed. And they have been making progress. Uh, they are low down. There's an organization called Transparency International that's widely looked to for this kind of uh, information. That's a corruption. They've got two or three scales of measuring corruption. And Ukraine is low down. They're 116th out of 180 countries uh, in their index. That's uh, that's not good. You know, the very top are places like uh, Singapore and Taiwan. Canada, I think, is normally in the top 10 someplace. So they're at 116th. But they Russians are at 137th. And Ukraine has moved up eight points in a decade. They moved up a point last year. Ukraine, for practical reasons, but also for uh, message send, send, signaling has to show they are making progress on the corruption side. And we should just as a footnote point out, point out Russia is now making corruption easier. Uh, they are now passing a series of laws and regulations stipulating that the Duma people, people across various sectors of society, no longer have to openly declare their income. So basically saying, as long as this... Uh, thing which they don't call a war is on, but for wartime purposes, we are suspending our efforts at, um, you know, dealing with corruption, basically. So it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a bizarre situation where Ukraine is not permitted to fire on Russia, but Russia is allowed to fire on Ukraine endlessly and openly, and corruption is allowed to increase in Russia officially, in effect, and it's being dealt with, however, uh, in a very significant way inside Ukraine. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. We're kind of tight on time this morning, but uh, certainly this is a very fluid situation, and uh, I'm sure we'll touch base on this in the next few days as uh, developments uh, continue to uh, unfold there. As Al, always, Ali, thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. It's always good to talk to you, Bo. Take care. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor at uh, Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.